Hello, this is Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell, and we have a somber edition of the Weather or Not podcast. As you know, last week, a condo building collapsed in Surfside, a coastal city in South Florida. This horrific event claimed the lives of many, including my godmother and uncle, Gladys and Tony Ozano. Our family was fortunate as they were found side by side and intact. It, however, does not take the pain away. But we can, as a family, put them to rest. That cannot be said for so many other families still waiting to hear about their loved ones. But there is a group of people hard at work dedicated to finding those loved ones. They are the first responders, firefighters, and search and rescue teams of Miami-Dade County. They are true heroes. Vivian Gonzalez has their story, plus a look at the equipment and science used in their search. I have the opportunity to bring in Maggie Castro with Miami-Dade Fire Rescue to help us better understand what fire rescue crews are growing through. And what a heartbreaking situation, Maggie, to watch unfold. And my thoughts and prayers are going out to those missing their loved ones and fire rescue crews in the front lines working around the clock under dangerous conditions. So now all of this happened in the middle of the night when people were sleeping and it's unimaginable that they just did not know what was coming, no warning at all. Now the 911 calls are starting to come in. All rescue teams are being asked to respond. Can you tell us how do you react to such event and how do you even get started with such a big mission? Um, it's like you said, this is, um, we understood the severity right off the bat when the first crew arrived and realized that it was not a partial parking garage collapse, that it was actually a full building collapse. <clears throat> we, we, a lot of times judge our, the way that we would respond when we arrive at a scene based on the time of day. We know there are times of days that there is less likelihood of, of people being home, but any call in the middle of the night is always gonna be more challenging because everyone will tend to be home. Mm -hmm. A situation like this, as much as we train, as much as we prepare for situations like this, it's very different and it's it's difficult when you arrive on this scene and actually see it in front of you the first responding crews i have to say from having listened to the 911 call did the most amazing job that they could have done it's very easy for us even though we're trained as first responders to become overwhelmed and to also want to jump in and not see the big picture you have people yelling at you, you have people screaming for help, and it's easy to get caught up and want to help because it's, it's human nature, it's what we do. Yeah. But the, you need to step back and assess the entire situation so that everyone can maintain as a high level of safety as possible and mm -hmm. do things in an organized manner. We can't just jump in and help the first person we find because there's hundreds of other people that are gonna need us as well. So it, it takes a lot of effort and discipline on the, on the side of the crews that were first on scene to work the plan that we all know needs to be worked, which is setting up a structure, 
trying to identify those victims that can remove themselves, assist the ones that need minor help, have the ones that can help others help them so that we can utilize all the resources on scene initially until we get more crews. So it is a, it is a process. It is the incident command system. And it is just um, a process that works, but is you require a lot of discipline to make it happen. And how do you know how many crews do you need? Who makes that assessment? When the first unit arrives, depending on how the call comes in, the call will, will have an initial dispatch. A partial building collapse gets a certain amount of units, a certain amount of rescues, a certain amount of fire trucks, uh, battalion chiefs, EMS captains. When the first unit arrives, they make the initial assessment and they can either upgrade the assignment for more units or they can downgrade the assignment and cancel some of the incoming units so that they are available for other calls. When the first unit arrived, obviously the assignment had to be immediately upgraded to a full, what we call mass casualty incident, an MCI. And MCI level five is the highest that we have. And that's exactly what the first crew that arrived did. They established command. They called dispatch and said, we have an MCI level five. We need everyone to respond. This is going to be a technical rescue assignment. We need all technical rescue units in route. Uh, Notify the USAR chief. We're gonna need urban search and rescue on this. So they, they had the forethought to think of all these things and all the resources that we have available as a department and get them all in route. Now, obviously, these situations are ever evolving. We're in day four of the operation and things are still changing. As needs arise, we find a way to meet those needs. As resources, which at this point has not yet happened, are no longer required, those resources are let go. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is still an all hands on deck operation. Everyone is working. Everyone is working long and hard hours. And um, we have more USAR teams arriving from other parts of the state. We've even had a, a team from Mexico that has been integrated into Florida Task Force 2's team. And this morning we had an Israeli team. This was requested by the families of the, the victims that have not yet been found. As you know, we have, it's a very large Jewish community and they were requesting to please allow this Israeli team to be led into the country and allowed to work with us. And the mayor made that happen and they arrived this morning. So they will be working, starting, they will start work today along with our teams. Incredible. I often wonder what is going through a first responder's mind as they're processing the devastation that they're seeing with their own eyes. Like when you arrive to the scene, how do you even realize your responsibilities and how do you process this emotionally? Um, I can tell you that when, at least for myself, mm-hmm. when we, when I first arrive on a scene and I can, I, I feel com- comfortable and confident that I can speak for most first responders there is just this autopilot that kicks in 
this is why training is so important. Mm -hmm. We always say, you know, we have to train how we work because when things like this happen, your training will automatically take over. And that's what you're going to go on. You're going to go on everything you've learned throughout your career. And it's just going to happen. The emotional process on a call like this can often take a little time to set in. Luckily, in recent years, we have started to really embrace the need for psychological awareness for first responders as well as everyone else. The, the need for assuring that we work on our mental health. We've always had the, it's not an attitude, but I guess you can call it an attitude that when things are going wrong, people call us. Yeah. So in our minds, not that we think that we're better than other people, but in our minds, we are the ones that fix problems. We don't have problems. We fix problems. But that mentality is, is good to do the work, but we have to also look within ourselves and put that, put that guard down and say, you know what, today I need help. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a difficult thing for us to do. It used to be frowned upon, you know, back in the day, slowly but surely the culture is changing and that's a, that's a good thing because we have to understand that we are humans as well. And whether we have something within us that allows us to function when things go wrong, which is, I believe, a gift that allows us to do the work that needs to be done, we also need to treat ourselves kindly and give ourselves an opportunity to go through the process of releasing some of this emotion because this is difficult. Working on a pile 12 hours a day, removing debris, finding lifeless bodies, finding human remains, and not finding someone alive takes a toll on the rescuers as well. I, uh, you nailed it. You're human. And, and, I, and I wanted people to know that you are human and you are going through a lot during this entire process. So thank you for that. And are there standard operating guidelines or procedures like a science behind you, uh, the way you tackle a disaster of this nature? Definitely. There's, there's protocols, there's um, um, policies and procedures that we follow. There are standard operating procedures, which give you a framework from which to work on. And then it is up to the individuals that are working at the scene to use that framework to establish certain positions and then tweak it to make it work for the incident that we're in. So the incident command system is extremely important. We, we meet often, we brief often, at least three or four times in a 12 hour operational period, give updates, get updates from the managers of the teams that are working on the pile. That's passed up, information is disseminated back down, the missions, and there's multiple moving parts that work together, almost like 
it makes me think of like a, a watch. You've got all these little pieces that by themselves can't do anything, but you put them together and they start clicking and you've got a beautiful piece that's just working like clockwork. And that's what take, it takes a little time, but we've got it in place. Everything is set up. Again, it's fluid. We may bring in some additional people and things like that. More, more um, professionals. We may have like extra engineers coming in. We may have other teams. We have uh, physicians on scene. So there's, there's additions to this clock, but there's a basic structure that always happens. And that's where these decisions are made. And that those decisions are then disseminated to the squad leaders and then down to the individuals who are performing the task. And how do you transition from a search and rescue to a search and recover operation? Well, that determination is going to be made in a joint effort with the different authorities that are here. But that determination will not be made until we have exhausted every possibility of finding a person alive in the rubble. So we will not switch into that mode until we have assured ourselves and everyone that we have looked through everything and there is no possibility of someone being alive in the, in the rubble. Okay. Now your team has to work above and under the ground. What type of tools do you use for what situation? It, it all depends on the space that's available. There's no two scenes like these that are the same. So the first thing that happens is when a space is found underground, for example, Mm-hmm. before anyone enters the space, the engineers take a look at the space. They look at the structural stability of the space. And before work can start, we may have to do what's called shoring. Shoring means putting bracing into place to hold structural members. In case one of those members fails, we have something to catch it so it doesn't collapse on the workers. So that's why a lot of times it seems like things take a long time and sometimes they do, but they are all necessary steps and necessary procedures to ensure not just the safety of the workers, because as first responders, we assume that there is always going to be a level of danger with the work that we do. And we accept that responsibility. That is part of what we do and is something that we accept as a part of our job but we're not just thinking of our safety. We're thinking of the safety of any possible survivors. If we cause a collapse or if a collapse happens because we're working, that could eliminate those void spaces, those spaces where people could be alive because any shift could disturb the pile. It could cause multiple secondary collapses. And that's what we want to make sure we avoid. So the time that we take to secure the stability of the building is not necessarily for our own safety. It's for our safety and the safety of anybody that could be alive in the pile. And you're also on the front lines. And I, I think it would be good to get your perspective on the gear that you wear because the gear is so important and the men and women are carrying pounds of equipment for protection and even have to carry it under the ground. What is that like? 
it's heavy okay. <laughs> it's very heavy um it depends on what the situation calls for if we have to wear bunker gear which is the gear we wear for fire protection that would i would have to say that's the heaviest gear that we have uh in total between the pants the jacket the helmet the the self-contained breathing apparatus that we wear because if the, the environment is not tenable for us to breathe in, we have to wear this apparatus. That could be a total of up to 80 pounds that we wear additional on wow. our backs and, and over ourselves. In situations like the one that we're in right now in this collapse, we are going to wear, as Urban Search and Rescue, we're just going to wear pants and long sleeve shirts, gloves, mm -hmm boots, eye protection, helmets. So it's lighter, uh, doesn't offer as much protection. Uh, we don't have much in the, in the way of abrasion protection. So that's something we have to be careful with because obviously there's a lot of sharp edges, there's concrete, there's rebar, there's glass, there's everything that you can imagine that makes up an apartment or a condominium and it's all broken in pieces. So we have to be very careful. So we wear the lightest possible clothing you know, that offer us some abrasion protection. And then we wear helmets in case anything falls. But we're doing a lot of physical work. So it has to be lighter. There were teams that I know some videos came out of the teams working underground. And they were wearing what appeared to be like bunker gear. But it's actually technical rescue gear, which is... A lot lighter. It doesn't have the thermal protection that you need to go into a fire. So it's very abrasion protective. And the only thing with that gear is that it has a, a barrier on the inside that doesn't allow body fluids to seep into the gear. So the same way it doesn't allow fluids to come in, it doesn't allow fluids to go out. So it's very hot because it just kind of keeps everything in. It keeps all your body heat trapped inside. But that offers us a much greater layer of protection when we're working in tunnels and when we're working on outside of the structural collapse that we're working on now, when we're doing anything technical rescue, like cutting up a car, it gives us that abrasion protection when we're dealing with jagged metal. So those would be the three types of gear that we would wear depending on the situation. The teams that you're probably seeing on TV that are working on top of the pile are wearing the lightest possible equipment okay. and carrying as little as possible with us. Now, what technology is being used to detect survivors? Um, we have a lot of technology at our disposal and every urban search and rescue team has a, a cache, which is their, all of their equipment. All their equipment put together is called the cache and they have to bring their own cash to every disaster that they go to. So we have multiples of everything because every team brings their own. So some of the, the primary technology that we use are our canines. That's why we have so many of them here. They are by far one of our biggest assets. These dogs train for years to be certified to be search and rescue dogs. And their canine handlers train right along with them. So every single dog that's out here has been training for years for this job, for this mission. We allow them, once we arrive at a scene, they're much lighter than us. 
they're a lot faster. And obviously a dog's sense of smell, particularly these dogs that have been trained to pick up the human scent are allowed to run through the pile. They can enter small spaces. They can enter little crevices that we may not even see. This is, they train on this and they find them and they go in there and they look. And if they find something, they alert or they hit. Those are the, the terminologies that you might hear you know, people using. The dog alerted, the dog hit on an area. When that happens, we focus our initial response to that area. The next thing that's going to happen is once we secure the stability of the area, make sure that we're not going to cause any collapses, we bring in microphones and listening devices. We have sonar, we have a, different types of devices that we can insert through crevices in the pile, and we're going to call out. We're going to yell, and we're going to let people know using a bullhorn, using a microphone, fire rescue's here, fire rescue's here. Do you hear us? Can you... Can you tap? Can you scratch? Can you move at all? Can you yell? And then it will be quiet. And we'll be quiet for a 30, 40 minutes and move the listening devices around and see if we can pick up. And if we start hearing more noise, we start triangulating it and getting more and closer to the one area that we pinpoint that the sound is coming from. Once we do that, we look at the area and if need be, we will open a small inspection hole. We'll drill a small hole and we insert a tiny camera that's kind of like on the end of a snake and it can, it can travel through the crevices that are underneath this inspection hole and it can give us 360 degree views of the area. And we're looking for a person. We're looking to see if a person is anywhere in that area. And if we find a person, we find what appears to be a body, then we try to get a response from that person and look for signs of life on that person. And if we determine that it appears to be a person that is viable, that could be alive, then we are going to create a plan to remove the debris to get to that person. And that, depending on how much is over them, how much debris we have to get through, that's how long it'll take to get to them. But that is basically the process when our dogs alert, which is the first, they're the first ones on scene that we run through the pile. Now we know that weather has been playing a role in the S rescue efforts and that lighting would potentially stop the operation. Is there anything else that could halt rescue efforts? Um, we were dealing with a bit for a bit with some fire. Uh, there was a fire that we were having some difficulty finding the seat of the fire or the, the, the base of the fire, the origin of the fire to be able to put it out. So there was a lot of smoke and heat that was coming from the pile, making the rescue efforts very difficult. And at, some, at one point we had to stop the rescue efforts until we were able to remove some of the debris and locate the seat of this fire that was very deep in the pile to be able to put the fire out. So that's something else that has been slowing down the process or that could slow down the process in search and rescue efforts. Correct. Um, and that, that's the only thing 
other than if there's lightning that has stopped this operation here. Now we have, you have the best fire rescue crews in the country working day in and out where debris is unstable, making conditions dangerous to work through. What would you tell the family and friends of victims that are so desperate to find out about their loved ones? I would tell them like I told them yesterday when we went to speak to them to give them an update in the afternoon that to please believe that first and foremost, our hearts break for them because we can't even begin to imagine what they're going through. But we've seen enough emergencies to know how difficult it is for family members so we can empathize with how they're feeling. But we want them to know that even though with the limited visuals that they have, that they see on television, that it may appear as if not enough is happening, but we promise you that everything that can happen is happening. And as quickly as we can work, we are working. And if it doesn't seem like it's fast enough, it's because the time that we're taking to ensure safety is for your family members. We don't want anything to happen to anyone who could be in a void space and have a possibility of being found. We can't put every single person that's here on that pile to remove the rocks as quickly as possible, even though instinctually, that's what we think should happen. It cannot happen that way. We could technically create the, a secondary collapse that way, and we could eliminate any void spaces where there potentially could be a live victim. We're working as quickly as we can, 24-7. There is no time where anyone is not working on that pile. We have machinery. We have teams rotating and day and night just working as quickly as possible to try to find anyone that could potentially be alive in this pile. And we're all praying for a miracle that there's some sort of sign that there's still life underneath all of that debris. And we're gonna continue holding on to hope so. A big thank you to Maggie Castro from Miami-Dade Fire Rescue and all first responders for what you're doing for the community. Uh, I really appreciate your time and for the Weather or Not podcast, I'm meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez. Thank you, Vivian.